Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks who have used the historical collections in the Hagley Library, especially folks who have received support in the form of grants and fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joining me today is Benjamin Kletzer, PhD candidate in modern Chinese history at the University of California, San Diego. And we'll be discussing his dissertation project titled China's Dream of a Red Railway, Professional Railroaders and the Making of Industrial Power, 1945 to 1976. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Uh, now, let's sort of start by painting with broad strokes. What is it that you're researching and writing about? So my research traces the development of China's railway system, which um, goes under the name of China National Railways from 1945 to 1976 um, in the era uh, under for the first four years under um, the Civil War. And then the majority of the time under uh, the People's Republic of China leadership. And so this is the era of state socialism in the People's Republic and um, the formation of a national infrastructure system in a country that until 1949 really lacked railroad access. And by the end of the period, by 1976, has a developed railway network equivalent to other uh, industrialized nations. What attracted to you, uh, you to railroads in particular as a subject for your research? So actually, I started, I'm a railway enthusiast, and I started um, this journey about 15 years ago when I was in high school, and I discovered that China still ran steam locomotives in regular mm. service. Uh, it was one of the last places in the world at the time to still have uh, steam trains running, and I saved up money throughout high school, uh, working for a steam railroad, actually, um, and went to China and, and found this nation that was just opening up, really. I went right, I landed during the closing ceremony of the Olympics in 2008. Mm -hmm. And so I found this nation that was really opening up to the, the world at the time and just welcoming an incredible culture incredibly uh, friendly people and an, a fascinating railway system. And I knew nothing of the history <clears throat> of the railways or really of modern Chinese history at the time. And so I came back and promptly started my undergraduate degree with the decision that I would go back to China. And so mm -hmm. I started right away taking Chinese language classes. And um eventually moved back to China to study abroad. And at the time I was a Soviet, uh, I had focused on Soviet railway history in my undergraduate degree. And um, upon graduating and living in China for several years as an English teacher, um, my focus really narrowed from Soviet history to modern Chinese history. And taking um, a lot of my background knowledge for my undergraduate degree, but also the Chinese language fluency I gained uh, through about five years of living in the country over time. Um, and so I wanted to get a PhD in history and that moved from Soviet studies to Chinese studies. 
And so I started at the University of California at San Diego in 2017. Um, and my dissertation project really developed at the time <clears throat> as it became harder to get access to sources in China, the connections I'd built through my railway enthusiast hmm. uh, uh, hobby mm -hmm. became more and more valuable for research because I built this whole network of um, friends, acquaintances, contacts in, in management, even on, on local railroads in China. And um, it became clear as, as research access became harder and harder in China, and this was even before COVID, that mm. those contacts would be crucial. And so um, my dissertation project really moved towards um, focusing on China National Railways, which is a topic that's been neglected. There's actually only one, unlike right in, in American history, and especially at the Hagley, Railroads are seen as this integral part of political, economic, social, labor histories, history of technology, right? Mm -hmm, like this, mm -hmm. is, this is an integral part of American history in all spaces. But um, in Chinese history, they've been neglected. The only book actually out uh, is Railroads and the Transformation of China by uh, Professor Elizabeth Cole of Notre Dame who's uh, I'm honored that she's on my dissertation committee as well. Uh, and she has been quite helpful in, in this project. And that book just came out well, I was uh, about four years ago. Mm. So the, it's the having seen the lack of scholarship in this field, I really endeavored to write a history that um, fills in this huge gap and restores uh, understanding of what is the biggest employer, the biggest non-military employer in the world, wow. right? So China National Railways uh, currently employs uh, 2 million people directly. Mm. And and that puts it as the one of the biggest employers of the world and the biggest non-military non employer. Wow. Well, I think for a lot of our listeners, they might be uh, quite familiar with American railroad history, as you mentioned. So perhaps you could use that as a touchstone. And um, so how does Chinese railroad history compare and contrast, uh, perhaps, with the American story? So actually, that's what drew me to the Hagley. And, mm -hmm. and as my time at the Hagley, I've, I've drawn even further parallels, okay. which is that there was a group of of. Chinese engineers who studied at the Pennsylvania Railroad mm -hmm. and effectively brought a lot of the models of the Pennsylvania Railroad to China. And so while it doesn't look like a standard American railroad history, a lot of the particulars actually look like a specific American railroad, which happened to be the biggest railroad in America. Mm -hmm. um, unlike America, though, China's railways grew up um, before this, as and before independence, right, as as a product of colonialism. And so mm -hmm. so railway imperialism, which is a term that has come and went into acceptance over the years, but um, really defined railway networks in China. And each colonial power built a railway network in their own sphere of influence 
to solidify their control and expand their control. And the railways, especially in Manchuria, were the opening salvo of imperialism, right? The railroad was built first and then used to justify imperial conquest. Um, and But this created a very disparate network. And unlike the United States, where this was a disparate network of different companies, this was a disparate network of railroads that could not interchange. Right. They, mm-hmm. there, there was a British railroad built to a certain track gauge and there was a French railroad built in a different country to a much smaller track gauge. No con- connectivity in Beijing, for example, there were four train stations and no connections in between them. Oh, my so freight freight <laughs> until 1945 freight actually had to be physically transloaded between stations because freight cars couldn't move between. And had they been able to, they couldn't have actually gone through each other's tunnels because <laughs> there, there, there was no unified clearance even. Um, and so this, the railroads are really unified. The nationalist government attempts to unify the railroads under this developing Chinese railroad, uh, group of Chinese railroad engineers in the 1920s. And it's only stymied by the fact that the nationalist government still follows the um, debt rules of prior colonial regimes. Mm. So the nationalist government is 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 wary to nationalize British and American property because those are allies of the nationalist government and they don't want to alienate their allies. Mm. And mm-hmm. um Nationalizations eventually accomplished at at horrific loan expense, which the nationalist government bears instead, and then prevents them from making any construction, right? Because they have this huge debt. Mm-hmm. And so from the unlike the United States, right, you don't have this era of maturity of railroads, where in the 19 around 1900 till 1930, till the Great Depression. American railroads really grow into these huge corporations involved in multiple aspects of the economy because not only have they become profitable enterprises, but they've also become, you know, the linchpin of the economy in each area that they serve or in multiple areas with the big railroads. Um, China, that doesn't happen. So there's none of that modernization. There's none of that integration. And what happens instead is that you have basically stagnation. Mm. And that stagnation is exacerbated then by the Civil War and the Japanese invasion in World War II, which destroys about 90% of the railway network. Oh, wow. So in terms of in terms of the the rails or the rolling stock or everything rails, rolling stock. So the the only intact railroads, which until 1945 can uh, aren't part of the Republic of China, are in Manchuria, in Mm -hmm. what what the Japanese have now claimed as their puppet state of Manchukuo. Mm -hmm. Um, And the nationalist government and and its successor the people's republic of china are faced with this very divided destroyed railway system in 1945 and so unlike then this is where it really differs from modern american railroad history 
-hmm. Modern American railroad history in, in a lot of ways is the story of these corporations, especially in the Northeast, burdened by the infrastructure and the expenses of a prior industrial economy. Right. Like and that this later causes these horrific bankruptcies across mm. the Northeast, which leads to Conrail and eventually leads to, of course, all the records being at the Hagley. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, China, there's this really restarting point mm. where the same engineers and managers, right, that the same brain trust who has been thinking about this for 10, 15, 20 years and, and growing because of course there's universities, there's study abroad programs with America, there's internships with American railroads, now has a moment where they can rebuild the entire system. Mm -hmm. And not only can they do this, but of course it's necessary, right? There, 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 there are no um, railroads really running and of course, railroads are the linchpin of any industrialized, you know, modern nation. So um, that's where it really differs from American history is that you have you have this really divisive background and and a history that involves American banks, not really American railroads, but American banks. And then in 1945, it basically hits a reset button. And that's then when it starts mirroring the Pennsylvania Railroad and mm -hmm. this particular one particular American railroad, which is known for following a very technocratic, meritocratic leadership model, which in 1945 was starting to lose steam, actually, mm -hmm. in the, the post-war economy, um, really then comes into China and, and that vision of a railroad run by a technocracy and where decisions are made with engineering first, right? Profitability comes with efficient engineering decisions, mm -hmm. not profitability is the motivator for decisions. And then that influences efficient efficiency in engineering. Um, and so that, that ends up influencing Chinese railway development to the point where, to this day, if you look at quite a lot of the expenses of China's railways, they they look, you know, what they're spending money on, of course, is very different. But the way they allocate money and spend money still looks very much like the Pennsylvania Railroad at its height in, in wow. the 1910s and 1920s. <laughs> um, and, and... And that's not because they're they're copy pasting from 1920. It's because this this what I think is this this, this fundamental idea of of a technocracy governing this has of course imprinted so solidly that um, it continues to make decisions. Yeah, uh, was state ownership of uh, the railroad? Um... Uh, did that facilitate the establishment and continuance of this uh, technocracy? Yes. And so my dissertation actually traces, right, add, to tell the story of Chinese railway development, my dissertation takes the perspective of the railway technocracy 
and traces their work, their skill and their development through this era. Hmm. And what my dissertation largely shows is that this is a ebb and flow process under the Mao era. And a, most of that has to do with that the technocracy, even to this day, is uncomfortably independent of the Chinese Communist Party, right? The Chinese Communist Party, of course, um, contrary to, you know, American political discourse right now about the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party is a very small majority of China. Right. Like there's a tiny, you know, far less than 10 percent of the population is a member of the Communist Party. And that certainly is the case on the railroads. Right. Like that that 10 percent of the population is concentrated in political power. So if you look at engineers and managers, right, in any industry, the vast majority of them are not members of the Communist Party. Their power is purely professional technocratic power. Right. And they're they're empowered by the leading political authorities who, of course, give them funding and support and prioritization. But um, this technocracy is uncomfortably independent for the Communist Party at times. Hmm. And so in the first era, right, the first kind of, I divide this into eras that, that follow the general divisions of eras in Chinese history. So um, just a, a quick summary, 1949 till 1952 in, in Chinese history is considered about, about the establishment of the People's Republic of China. The, the party now defines it as, as a new democracy or this, this era where they're basically consolidating power. In 1953 to 1957, what's the first five-year plan? Mm -hmm. Okay, and so that's 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 a Soviet-style five-year plan: rapid industrialization. 58 till 61 or 62, depending on how one defines it, is the Great Leap Forward, mm -hmm. right? Which is this era that that has a completely different economic model, and the resulting famine. Uh, ultimately killed 30 to 45 million Chinese people, right? So this is this is horrific. The mm. world's worst man-made famine in, in human history. Mm -hmm. um, after that, there's a recovery period from 62 to 66. And then from 66 to 76, when Mao Zedong dies, is... Uh, what's considered the greater 10 years of the cultural revolution, which is again, another point where um, political discourse really radically changes and the country goes through um, some real horrific humanitarian and political economic disasters. Um, then to, to fast forward past my dissertation, mm -hmm. right? You have about two years of political infighting and then 78 till 1992 is the era of Deng Xiaoping and that's the era of reform. In 1992, Jiang Zemin becomes president and you have the beginning of the first of the 10 year terms of Chinese presidents, which of course last till this year when Xi Jinping has now been elected for another term, breaking the precedent of 10 year terms. 
but and bringing us to the modern day. Mm-hmm. My dissertation, at least in the Mao era, is divided into those temporal frameworks because that's what's familiar to readers. And that is, it's familiar to readers because it is the, I would argue that the most logical way to divide Chinese history to really understand politics, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at a non, my, my history is a political economic history. If you're looking at a social or cultural history, of course, you divide it through different uh, timelines because, of course, social and political, uh, social and cultural trends are are dependent on different factors at times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, so, so how do how do how does this periodization map onto the development of the railroad? So that that periodization, yes, thank you. That periodization then goes to. Um, basically that rebuilding and consolidation process from 1945 to 1952 on the railroads is a process of unification connection consolidation standardization the the railway technocracy who actually the reason i start my dissertation in 45 is because a lot of this starts in 1945 when the ccp first starts controlling railroads Oh, right. Mm-hmm. It kind of sets the stage in Manchuria and spreads south. And as it spreads south, incorporates uh, the existing railroad engineers of those regions because they don't flee to Taiwan. They join their compatriots working for another regime mm-hmm. on railroads. Like everyone else did in China. Right. You know, like so um, that it's really the technocrats are in charge. There's there's a military general at the very top, but they're really making decisions on every level to unify, standardize, and create a single railway system. In the first five-year plan from 53 to 57, then those technocrats trans- take what they built and turn it into a technically advanced railway system. Mm. So they using tremendous investments. 21% of the entire budget of the first five-year plan goes just to the railroads. Wow. Right? There is more money allocated to um, locomotive construction than any form of agriculture in the first five-year plan. Like this is a tremendous priority. And... um, the result, right, with with all that money and all that prioritization, comes this rapid growth, right? And so the railroads are able to keep pace with the rapid growth of the economy, so that, of course, as industrialization, as rapid heavy industrialization sweeps across the country, the railroads are able to facilitate that, hmm. and and really, you know, there's no capacity or a term that we're now very familiar with, right? There's no supply chain shortages, uh-huh. right? That, 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 of course, railroads are a huge part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and if a railroad is below in capacity, supply chain shortages, of course, result. Um, so that all then, coming into 1957, you have this fairly structured technocracy that's now... Um, really a key part of the economy. But like other economic sectors, 
it is not fulfilling the ideological goals of the Communist Party. And so in the Great Leap Forward, the railroads are radically restructured, hmm. stripping away the power of the technocracy and giving all of that power to political leadership mm -hmm. because the technocracy and the continued existence of the technocracy, of course, defies the egalitarian and revolutionary ideology of Maoism, mm. right? That that the, there's this expert core of elite managers and engineers who largely come from the working class on the railroads. Okay, they're not they're not they're not um, wealthy corporate bureaucrats, but this power independent of the party, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is is really strict is is really questionable to the party and so you have a politicization of all industrialization mm -hmm. all economic activity especially the railroads and in the great leap forward on um, the railroads this creates an environment of horrific horrific uh train crashes mm -hmm. right so they strip oh, wow. away rules and regulations are seen as conservative right and that if volunteerism guides us, if if willpower can guide railway management versus rules and regulations, then that should be followed. And so, of course, when you eliminate rules and regulations, the result is in three years, there are 1,378 major train wrecks. Oh, wow. Okay. Serious. Major train wrecks with fatalities. And... um. So in 1960, the party seeing this, this, of course, destruction of the railroads really reverses course, puts the technocracy back in charge. Hmm. And so the technocracy then goes and basically re rebuilds the railways because they've been literally destroyed by, by political leadership. And in 1966, that rebuilding process is changed by the cultural revolution the cultural revolution targets intellectuals and people who are not seen as loyal to mao and the party mm. and intellectuals and te technocrats are a particular target and so in some areas of the railroads they're very protected but what mm -hmm. you see on the railroads is is that there's a purge of people who whose positions are very vulnerable, but you have a transition where the technocracy actually then entrenches itself. And you have you have technocrats coming out of this, the, the technocrats, the engineers and managers who have been educated since 1949, all have the party ideology too, because they've been educated since 1949. Mm -hmm. And so while their elder professors might be targeted for ties to the previous regime. Mm -hmm. They have the quote unquote red credentials mm. to stay and they have the technocratic mindset of their professors. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the Mao era, what you have is you have a group of people who are tried and true technocrats, right? This is this is a their their political, you know, it is technocracy is politics but their their belief is in science and engineering as management guidelines mm -hmm. um 
that are in charge of the railroads and really power the railroads through economic reform and um to this day mm-hmm. right where you where you see a railway network that's really been developed by these technocrats who are of course products of the communist education system but have the professional ethics and priorities of uh their predecessors mm-hmm. who acquired some of these ideas from the Pennsylvania Railroad in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And and so is that the Red Railroad of your title? Yes. So the dream of the Red Railway is this party's unfulfilled dream of a railway that would be truly revolutionary, right? A railway mm-hmm. that would not be hierarchical, oh, that uh-huh. would be governed by volunteerism, that would be governed by the party, that and and like in numerous other sectors, the party never achieved this, right? Workers' control in factories and workers' decision-making was ultimately subverted by um, hierarchical management, right? That like the rest of the world, right? So if you go to a Chinese factory today, it doesn't look like a communist, you know, whatever Mao thought a communist factory should look like mm-hmm. with cooperation and volunteerism. It looks like a factory just like in the United States, but with, of course, a different cultural background. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's where the dream of the Red Railway comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Is that Mm -hmm. the party dreamed of creating a railway system that would be the standard bearer of a new political reality, a new, uh, like the Soviet Union, this utopian vision of a truly communist nation. And what they got instead was a state railway system that looks like every other state railway system around the world, mm-hmm. right? And 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 um, you know has more in common with uh, all the various state railways around the world, and and mm-hmm. certain parts of it have a lot in common with Amtrak and and Conrail and other national creations in the United States mm-hmm. with railroading. Than they do, of course, with with some utopian communist vision, mm-hmm. which of course um, is really a, a pretty good stand-in for the political philosophy ruling contemporary China, which is to say, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Of course, that's the phrase, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Of course, those Chinese characteristics seem to be—it's uh, a euphemism for capitalism. So a hybrid system uh, they found to work best. Yes, and and others have argued right that there's there really is China is a technocratic nation. Um, I that argument I think has faded to the background with the Xi Jinping administration. Mm-hmm. Xi Jinping, well, a trained engineer, well, right, has of course really pushed back against the technocracy and reasserted the party in everything. Mm-hmm every aspect of life. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, right, there, there's this element that they, like the Soviet Union, like the later Soviet Union, created a, a um, you know, politicized, quote unquote, communist technocratic system that, of course, in China has been, become a very 
capitalist economy you know it's a capitalist economy led by a communist party right um now let's bring this back closer to home how during the course of this project did hagley come onto your radar and uh, how have you been able to use the collections at the hagley library to tell the story so i i came across the hagley first uh, I was in the Baltimore and Ohio Railway Archives in, in Baltimore, uh, in the Baltimore and Ohio Railway Museum. And uh, I came across references to a group of engineers and technicians who were in the United States during World War II. And these were all names that I knew from my Chinese history research, because these were all major decision makers in China. But um, it referred to them as this group, the... Um, um, Association of Chinese Railway Technicians in America. Hmm. And um, this group um, was in the United States with U.S. War Department funding to help to study American railroads so that they could rebuild Chinese railroads in the aftermath of World War II. Hmm. And the biggest group was at the Pennsylvania Railroad. And so... Um, I applied for an exploratory grant with the Hagley just to look in the Pennsylvania Railway archives because, of course, um, the Hagley has the largest collection of departmental records. While the Pennsylvania State Archives have the presidential correspondence, the Hagley's archives, focusing on every vice president and especially the departments, actually show how the Pennsylvania Railroad worked, right? These are really essential records for understanding um, the railroad. And of course, individual interns from China don't meet with the president. They go to the department that they're going to work in. Mm -hmm. And you see that in those department files. And so at the Hagley, I discovered a wealth of this information. And, and it turns out that the, the PRR files are filled with references to, to links to China mm. uh, between sharing motive power data, mm -hmm. selling mm -hmm. locomotives, um, and most of all, right, the, these, these foreign exchanges with this group of engineers who were working throughout the PRR system. And so through the exploratory grant, I, you know, tested the waters and found all these files and then applied for a, a Henry Bellin DuPont uh, research grant to come back to then do really in-depth research with the PRR archives to understand not just what this group of engineers was doing, but what technology what ideas, what um, what they were exposed to, and what came back to China, mm. right? What 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 was the actual technology transfer? Mm -hmm. What was the actual knowledge transfer? And the Hagley files show all of that. I mean, it's it's incredible. That's wonderful because they they from looking at the blueprints that the Chinese engineers helped draw, mm. which the Hagley has, you can see. Individual technologies like brake shoes, axles, axle boxes that come to China with these engineers that are standard Pennsylvania Railroad designs, 
but now, of course, become the standard designs in the People's Republic of China uh, through these students. Um, That's, and so the Hagley archives are mm -hmm. have been crucial to this. Mm -hmm. That's just terribly exciting. It sounds like you uh, struck gold, as it were. Yes, I, I mean, I truly did. The, the Pennsylvania Railway uh, Archive at the Hagley, um, you know, would take years to go through, of course, every file. <laughs> it's it's, it's mm -hmm. huge. But um, the, the areas that uh, my research touches are, are huge amounts of the files. And, and I was able to find a tremendous amount. I mean, mm -hmm. like, really... And it really solidified um, understanding the realities of technology transfer, but also the realities of this knowledge transfer from this famously technocratic, meritocratic railroad to building a now technocratic railroad. Mm -hmm. I, I love hearing that because at the, the Hagley Center, we just live to facilitate folks research and use of the Hagley collections. And it's just great to see what comes out the other side. Now, Ben, does your research have any implications for the present day? I think particularly about concerns about, um, well, specifically technology transfers, sometimes uh, um, illicit uh, and sometimes licit above or below the board between the United States and China. Um, uh, perhaps your work might speak to the present moment in some way. Yes. Yeah, so my work, I, I, I've done two things. To talk specifically about technology transfer, we can see how, right, how, how Chinese railways are really in touch with the world technological developments, but also are quite capable of their own innovations, right? Mm -hmm. that, that Chinese technology on the railways is not dependent on um, copyright violation, uh, industrial espionage, mm -hmm. but instead really is, is taking ideas that may be foreign or maybe domestic and applying them to uh, Chinese railways. There is in certain spheres, especially with high-speed rail, there mm -hmm. are legitimate accusations of stealing Japanese, specific Japanese technologies. Mm -hmm. Those are now past tense, actually, because China has now developed their own technologies based on the uh, pilfered technologies to uh, that are that are uh, used in their current generations of high speed mm -hmm. trains. But um, those are legitimate. So I think it's it's being my research shows being wary of broad strokes about um, intellectual uh, copyright violation because um, on Chinese railways, oftentimes what you find is, well, you could look at this and say, yeah, they, they stole that, right? That that's reverse engineered. In reality, it, it's a, it's a similar, but independently developed way to solve similar problems um and to be blunt like at this point with chinese railway development they're leading the pack not following the pack mm -hmm. and so there is very few people 
to steal from anymore in the outside world because um especially right the united states were now with freight railroads you know still ahead of china in terms of raw tonnage but technological development we're 50 to 60 years now behind china mm -hmm. um and it's not it's that we've been stagnant for 50 and 60 years and china hasn't mm -hmm. um and uh so what you have is is it's really a nuanced view of technology transfer, right? Mm -hmm. That that mm -hmm. saying it's copying, saying it's reverse engineered, is is too much of a blanket statement, right? That there's there's instead there are ideas borrowed, there are ideas shared, but there are also ideas that are purely national innovations, right? Mm -hmm. That 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 are products of this group of technocrats who now have existed in in Chinese history for well over 80 years and in the People's Republic of China for the entirety of the People's Republic of China. And of course, have a multitude of research institutions, a multitude of universities, right? They have, they have funding for railway development that dwarfs anything in the United States. So with that sort of research and development, of course, you're going to have a, your own innovations that that cannot be called stealing from the outside world. Mm -hmm. um, one of the big things I really focus on in in presenting my research in in a in a popular sphere mm -hmm. is really the similarities between Chinese railroads and Western railroads as a way we've seen in recent years right a rise in the demonization of China. When, mm -hmm. when that there's a bleed over in the United States between demonizing the Communist Party of China mm -hmm. and Chinese, the Chinese population. Mm -hmm. And my research really pushes back against this, showing that not only is this this formerly state enterprise, okay, it's 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 in an ambiguous sphere since 2013, but it's effectively a state enterprise. Not only does the state enterprise look like every other state railway, including capitalist Germany, Amtrak, you know, all the state railroads of the world, mm -hmm. but it looks like public or private corporations as well, right? Like the Pennsylvania Railroad of old or Union Pacific of today, right? And that these, these railroad workers, right, the technocrats and workers alike, are doing the same jobs as American railroaders, American engineers, American um, workers. Mm -hmm. And that while, you know, there are political disputes, there's this unifying idea behind work, labor history, history of technology, the sociology of, of uh, labor groups, that should unify people and push back against the demonization of, of a group of people, right? Which is, is unfortunately more and more common, mm. especially as I have conversations in the public sphere, you know, the, the, the question always is, is, is when is China going to take over the United States? Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, no, the answer is just, no, it's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. But, but um, 
that instead that we should think about what's really shared between us and China as the Chinese railroaders who are doing the same job as a railroader, you know, down the road um, in Wilmington, switching freight cars around right now, um, getting ready to go to work. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I like that image. Uh, we're all riding the same train. Yes. <laughs> and, and of course, with a railroad dissertation, the puns <laughs> and the, the uh, metaphors come very quickly and, and work their way into chapter titles. But the reality, right, is that, is that, um, this really is, we need, you know, we're unified, right? We're, we're mm -hmm. riding the same train. We're, mm -hmm. we're unified by our work and of course our citizenship on, on this planet. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, Ben, I just love this project and, uh, it's fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing it with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm oh, very honored. You're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>